0: Welcome to Plenary Session. I'm your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a practicing hematologist oncologist and I'm associate professor of medicine. I'm interested in issues at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy and that's what you're gonna get on this podcast. Welcome to season two. This week on Plenary Session, we've got a few things in store for you. First, I'm going to be discussing a new paper by Allison Haslam, which is entitled Patient Experience Captured by Quality of Life Measurement in Oncology Clinical Trials. This came out in JAMA Network Open on March 4th, and it's a fascinating little slice of quality of life literature. You won't want to miss it. And I also have a discussion of March 2nd's paper, Overall Survival in Patients with pancreatic cancer receiving matched therapies following molecular profile, a retrospective analysis of the Know Your Tumor Registry Trial. This came out in The Lancet Oncology. And this is just a great example of how to produce the least useful and most worthless document that could ever be put in a peer-reviewed literature. You won't want to miss this discussion, so stay tuned. But first, a thanks. I want to thank those of you who've gone online and support this podcast on Patreon.com. Patreon subscribers get access to the slides from lectures I give on Plenary Session. I also want to thank the hundreds of you who've gone to the iTunes store and reviewed this podcast. We appreciate that feedback. I also want to thank the dozens of you who've written reviews. A written review goes a long way. What can Plenary Session do for you? Email us your questions at plenary session podcast at gmail.com. Tweet to us at plenary underscore session. Let us know what you like about the podcast and let us know what you don't like. This year, on Season 2, we're going to incorporate some new elements in the podcast, and we want to know your feedback on them. Okay, first up on this week's episode, patient experience captured by a quality of life measurement in oncology clinical trials. So, this is a paper led by Allison Haslam, who is now an assistant professor at Oklahoma. And Allison here is the first and corresponding author and really did the lion's share of the work. So this is really Allison's project, of which I and several others whom I work with collaborated on. So what do we find here? Well, you need to know a little bit of background. So increasingly frequently in cancer clinical trials, you find a drug that's given in the front line setting. And say it improves progression-free survival. But let's say it doesn't improve, or we don't know if it improves overall survival. This is probably the case for many clinical trials of PARP inhibitors, at least some clinical trials, uh, the PALBO trials of the cyclin-4-6 kinase inhibitors, um, that kind of stuff, those kind of interventions where you had a drug, you tested in the front line, you got a PFS benefit, there's no OS benefit. And the discussion always goes the same way. Uh, you need to show an overall survival benefit. This is lethal malignancy. And they say overall survival benefit would have taken too long to show. And then we cite the paper by Emerson Chen that came out in JAMA Internal Medicine that shows that actually it doesn't take that much longer at all. The reason you're not doing it is because you don't want to know the answer to the question because it's a lot easier to hit a PFS target than an OS target, um, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, And then it it goes into this, well, let's look at quality of life. That's a tiebreaker. So drugs that improve PFS, whether or not they improve OS, if they improve quality of life, then, you know, that's good enough. That's a clinical patient-centered endpoint. And I agree. I wholeheartedly agree that if you have a drug that improves quality of life, that doesn't improve survival, um, that's, that's a winner. Um, there's one thing worth noting, which is improves quality of life over what period of time? You see, the key thing here is if you're going to say that adding a new drug upfront improves PFS and quality of life... Well, you can't just measure quality of life for the first three months or six months or even till progression because it is almost surely the case um, that quality of life uh, will be better if you delay progression because one of the things that affects someone's perception of their quality of life is the mere fact that you're telling them that they have progressed and they need a new therapy and that they have finished the benefit of one therapy that uh, is associated with a bad a bad feeling associated with perhaps scoring lower on quality of life questionnaires. So drugs that improve PFS might make someone feel better because it's delaying progression, but do they really improve quality of life? What do we really mean? And what you really mean is you need to measure quality of life over the duration of someone's lifespan. They're gonna take three, four, five drugs in a row. The quality of life benefit in the beginning has to be maintained. Um, They have to have better quality of life in the beginning and then the same quality of life on drugs two, three, four, five, and six versus the control arm, where on drug one, the quality of life might be lower, and then they might have the same quality of life on drugs two, three, four, five, and six. But if overall survival really is the same, then one wonders if quality of life on two, three, four, five, and six is the same in the group that got the new drug up front. Because by necessity, almost by definition, the progression-free survival durations might be shorter in that group that got the very long PFS in the beginning. After all, death is occurring at the same time point. Um, So the real question is, is there a quality of life decrement after the initial therapy that offsets the quality of life gain from the initial therapy? If so... Then the drug wouldn't be adding quality of life. It will be giving you more quality of life upfront that you're losing on the back end because you're having rapid progression on drugs two, three, four, and five versus a sort of a sustained quality of life. Might be a little bit lower initially for taking the standard of care therapies, but might be better on drugs two, three, four, five, and six because those PFS durations are lasting a little bit longer. The truth is we don't know, and the way, and what you do when you don't know is you measure across the duration of time, and that was the question that Allison sought to investigate, which was, when people are saying we're measuring, we're studying quality of life, what duration of the patient experience are they capturing? Are they capturing, God forbid, just the first 12 weeks of therapy? Or are they just measuring quality of life until progression? Or are they doing the obvious right thing, which is to measure quality of life over the duration of life, particularly in what we're talking about here, which is metastatic and incurable settings? And that's exactly what this paper by Allison looks at. It's a retrospective cross-sectional study of every RCT that reports on quality of life. And Allison is asking something very simple, which was, what were the interventions you studied? How long did you follow people for for the endpoint of survival? And then how long did you follow people for, for quality of life? And how many studies in the metastatic setting, the incurable setting, actually measured quality of life until death? So this has huge importance for PARP inhibitors in triple negative breast cancer, PARP inhibitors in ovarian cancer, cyclin 4, 6 kinase inhibitors in breast cancer. This has huge implications across cancer medicine, where we're trying to get frontline market share based on this empty surrogate endpoint PFS in the absence of overall survival. And the long story short is that well, it doesn't look so good. Allison reports that let's, in here, I'm just going to focus on the metastatic advanced and incurable setting. So How many of these uh, quality of life studies measure quality of life during the intervention? 90%, that's great. Uh, Although it should be 100%, but 90% is high. Uh, How many of them measure them at the end of the intervention, at the end of the treatment? Uh, And the answer is 44%. How many measure after the end of the intervention? It drops down to about 43%. How many measure quality of life at progression or after progression? And the answer is 29%. And then how many measure quality of life until death? in the advanced or metastatic or incurable setting? And the answer was just 1.4%. Just one trial did that. That is astonishing. So when you are saying that you have a new drug, it improves PFS, it doesn't improve OS, there's no OS benefit, but there's a new abstract at ESMO that says there's a quality of life benefit. Well, the real question is, how long do they measure quality of life? Because if they only measured it until progression or for the first few weeks, the first few months, um, that's not really capturing the quality of life of somebody who embarked on that journey, who took that drug first and then may have borne the price of more rapid progression on the back end. And that quality of life might have been diminished. So diminished, in fact, it takes away any quality of life benefit that was seen initially. And in fact... Allison shows, although they're very small numbers, that the percent of trials concluding favorably about quality of life was lower for the ones that really measured quality of life a very long time. The other thing that I think is worth noting in this study is just the figure, figure one and figure two, and these show tumor by tumor the duration of time where we're measuring survival and the duration of time where we're measuring quality of life or deterioration free survival, and it is just consistently shorter in the studies that measure duration free survival. Um, suggesting that, you know, we're not measuring quality of life for the totality of a metastatic cancer patient's journey, and, you know, lest anyone think that that would be too difficult, it's actually not that difficult. This is a metastatic incurable setting. You are giving these drugs on the order of, if you're lucky, a year or two years, three years. If you're very lucky, often less than that, and it is ridiculous to not measure the duration of quality of life over that time if the only purported benefit of a $100,000 a year medication is quality of life and you have no OS benefit, you're really obliged to measure quality of life for the duration of someone's journey with cancer from the moment they start the treatment until death because you really want to know if your drug is associated with a global improvement in quality of life, not just improved quality of life while on the drug or that the drug kicked out progression. You know, alternatively, one could imagine... Um, sort of sort of a bizarre scenario, uh, sort of a, a science fiction fantasy where somebody made a drug um, that prevented you from hearing for a three-month period of time that you had progressed. It just created the delusion in your mind for three months that if somebody told you, hey, your scans show progression, it just created the delusion that actually they didn't. That's all the drug does. Let's say it just goes in the brain and just corrects that thing. And it only lasts for three months. The delusion, will, the spell will wear off well, that drug might improve short-term quality of life because no one told you you progressed, you feel better initially, but of course, that drug is not improving survival. And... When the spell wears off, when the doctor tells you, you progressed, you progressed, you progressed, it's going to be feel as if it's coming fast and furious because, oh, the spell wore off, I just found out I progressed, and another progression, another progression, another progression, and there's no survival benefit. And of course, if one measures quality of life just in the beginning of someone's cancer journey, even such a ludicrous science fiction pill might show it improves quality of life. Um, and it did improve at least what you thought your PFS was. Um, this kind of thought experiment is meant to highlight just how foolish it is to look at quality of life just in the beginning and rather not the duration, particularly in the advanced or metastatic setting. I hope uh, it, it conveyed that point. Uh, so I think, you know, what's the strength of Allison's study? And I call it Allison's studies because Allison did all the work and pretty much led and ran the entire study. Um, I think the major strength is this is a systematic review, follow strobe guidelines, methodologically rigorous. Allison coded the majority with of course, help from the co authors, the majority of the data points, analyzing how long quality of life was studied. Allison, of course, an absolute excellent researcher, you know, who who does fantastic work. And thus, I think those are the real strengths of the study. And, and then the biggest surprise is that, you know, a lot of pundits, armchair experts, you know, people who, I don't know, maybe are in the business of hyping drugs and, don't really take care of patients and don't understand what it's like to be in the clinic or I don't know where they come from. Uh, They're quick to say there's a quality of life benefit shown from drug A or drug B, and they have no idea how long they've measured quality of life. And these pundits are often um, grossly off the mark, as this study shows, that very few of these studies, quality of life studies, are actually measuring it for how long we need them to measure. And that is a gross failure of the system. Well, it would be a failure of the system if you thought the system's goal was to explain to patients, what is best for them, uh, but it would be a success of the system if you thought the goal was just to merely bring drugs to market. And I fear that there is a growing faction of people who think that is the real goal. So, overall, I think it's an important study, patient experience captured by quality of life measurement in oncology clinical trials. The take-home message is we're not measuring quality of life nearly as long as we need to. And as such, when people claim that drugs that don't improve survival improve quality of life, uh, many of those claims are frankly wrong. Uh, They are uh, deceitful and uh, lies because they've only measured quality of life for a tiny fraction of someone's cancer journey. And that does not tell me that they have a global quality of life improvement. Simple as that. And on a positive note, we will shift from a good study, in my opinion. It's a simple descriptive study, people. There's no, they're not trying to sell you anything. No one's trying to make any strong claims about the world or about causality or about what you should do. The recommendation is you're not measuring something uh, that's important for long enough. And, and yet you're talking about it as if you have. Uh, So that's the nice thing about the descriptive study. Uh, Now we're going to shift to a study where they don't know what they're doing, and they're making causal claims, and they are just wasting the money of some people. And that's what I want to talk about. So let's change gears to molecular sequencing in pancreas cancer. Overall survival in patients with pancreatic cancer receiving matched therapies following molecular profiling. A retrospective analysis of the Know Your Tumor Registry trial. Lancet Oncology, March 2nd. So... I don't even know where to start on this one. It's just a dumpster fire. It's just a a lousy retrospective analysis um, run by people who are employees of or consultants for or own equity in or have been paid by uh, Perthera or some company um, that I think is doing the sequencing in this study, some company that coordinated molecular sequencing, Um, And uh, it's also funded by a patient advocacy group that asks for donations, uh, but Uh, Having read this study, I would highly suggest that no one donates to the patient advocacy group because, I mean, if they're going to take your donations and throw it in the toilet um, and run just absolutely worthless science with it, um, then why donate to them? You know, there are a lot of causes where uh, your money can actually go to do some good in the world. Uh, So Pancreatic Cancer Action Network, um, it's not bad because they apparently, for all the money they have and all the donations they received, Uh, They can't even get a single consultant to tell them that this is not what anyone would want to see or do if one cared about the truth. So I guess I'm going to assume that we care about the truth here. Uh, And the truth here is, if you have pancreas cancer, um, is it in your best interest to undergo molecular profiling and uh, receive uh, targeted therapies if that profiling um, shows uh, abnormalities? So that's the question that faces real people, and I'm just going to assume um, that real doctors and real patients want to know the real truth. Um, I'm just going to assume that people don't want to know a convenient uh, falsehood, that people don't want to be told a lie, that if, in fact, it didn't improve your survival, um, you would want to know that so you wouldn't spend your money that way or wouldn't waste your time getting sequencing, um, not that you still want to be t- let left under your delusion or spell, let it improve survival. And if you assume that these authors care about the truth, and I keep saying assume because... Part of me really wonders how it's possible they could produce such a document if that's really what they wanted. Because you know, the problems, the flaws of data analysis they're making are not like secret flaws. they're like classic flaws. Um, if they're going to collect all this money um, and run this study and publish in Lancet Oncology and, and do molecular profiling for a thousand people,) um, You know, they surely could have gotten one epidemiologist to sit with them for one afternoon to tell them why they're running the worst designed study ever. So this study actually took 1,594 people who consented to this study. So that's how many people who wanted to do this. And 371 were excluded before the biopsy because they were lost to follow-up. The patient was unsupported. The doctor was unsupported. They were unable to biopsy, Cost concerns. They passed away. Uh, 1,200 people had tumor tissue sent for molecular profiling. And another 141 were lost because they were lost to follow-up. They were unable to obtain the biopsy. They died while they were waiting for this report. And um, 1,082 received the reports. 282 people had a quote, actionable finding, but that's not the real question. We wanna know how many people got a match therapy. They excluded another 405 people because 351 had no documented first line therapy. Um, Some were being followed because they're surgical candidates. 54 were excluded because of neuroendocrine or pancreatic biliary tumors. 677 patients were included in the analysis cohort. Okay, so to be analyzed in this study, You had to have gotten your report, lived long enough to get it, uh, and you had to have received at least one line of therapy. Okay, so that's a bit of guarantee time inserted, that they're going to exclude the sickest patients who are too sick to get any therapy before they pass away. They're just going to take the people who've gotten one line of therapy. And then they're going to divide the group out into those who had a molecular alteration that was druggable who received a match therapy, those who had a molecular alteration that was druggable who didn't receive a match therapy, and those who didn't have a molecular alteration that was druggable. Okay, so they get three curves. Now, here's the first mistake they make. Um, When you define in a post hoc analysis a Kaplan-Meier curve um, by any variable that's only known after the fact, like you didn't know who's going to get a match therapy at time zero when they started. You only know that after the fact. And when you define any groups based on a variable that you only know after the fact, you have inserted a lot of immortal time or guarantee time. In other words, people with a mutation that is druggable who live longer because their biology is more indolent, they're going to live longer and have a greater possibility to get the match therapy. And in fact, by definition, to get a match therapy, you have to live long enough to get the match therapy. And of course, standard of care in pancreatic cancer is not a match therapy frontline. It's not a match therapy second line either, arguably, with one exception, maybe MSI high. Um... And as such, the people who are getting match therapies are probably living longer from indolent biology uh, to get the match therapy rather than the match therapy doing anything for them. Uh, living to the time you get match therapy is a requirement for people on the match therapy arm. It's not a requirement for people on the unmatched therapy arm. So that's the people with the alteration who don't get a match therapy. And then there's the no marker arm. So this is a study that has guarantee time. We don't know how much guarantee time, and we have no way to adjust for that guarantee time. And as such... It's a totally worthless study. You can rip it up and put it in the trash bin because to answer the patient's question of, if you have pancreas cancer, should you be sequenced? And should you take a match therapy if you have a match? The answer is nobody knows because whoever did this study didn't know anything about guarantee time. And as such, they did a totally useless study and wasted everybody's time. Um, That's bad. Uh, At a minimum, they might've been able to do a landmark analysis to say, we're gonna take all the people alive at two years and compare the people who started a match therapy at that point, prior to that point, versus those who didn't. Um, they didn't do that. Uh, and there's some other statistical ways you can kind of get around it, but they didn't do any of those. Um, okay, so that's, that's problem number one. Problem number two, I see, is, you know, what do they consider a match? And a number of the people who are matching have MSI high tumors. Well, um, that's kind of not, not a perfect way to do a study either. Because testing all patients with solid tumor for MSI high status and giving a checkpoint inhibitor, if indicated, is already standard of care. It's not experimental. So really, that should be happening in both arms to the same degree. You know, the arm that's getting your fancy molecular profile uh, versus the arm that just gets simple immunohistochemistry to look for MSI high status. Um, And, you know, you really ought to do that since it's already approved for this purpose, especially in people who've exhausted one or two lines of therapy in pancreas cancer for which there are no real proven options. You might as well go with what is standard of care. So they don't do a great job of that. And many of the people, you know, have that as an issue. The next thing I see is a lot of the mutations they discover are BRCA mutations. And here they're giving rucoparib, olaparib, you know, blah, blah, blah. That's another one that you could just cleanly study in its own trial. The people with mutations in the DNA repair pathway benefit from PARP inhibitors. Uh, All we know is the lousy, lousy polo study uh, that uh, is also totally useless. Um, So, you know, I think that this just requires a clean randomized trial of its own. And there have been some such randomized trials that have been negative. Uh, They haven't been published. They've been press released uh, and presented as abstract. Next, um, they show people getting bonkers things. Somebody with an ALK fusion is getting crizotinib, IMRT, and gemcitabine. Okay, is that acceptable? Based on what? What is that? Somebody with a BRAF mutation getting trametinib to dabrafenib, okay, that's considered a match therapy. If you say so, okay. Somebody with a RET fusion got sunitinib, and that's considered match therapy. What what are what is this? What is this? Sunitinib is a RET inhibitor, perhaps weakly, uh, but uh, it's not known primarily for its ability to inhibit RET. Um, okay, so you know many of these matches are questionable, and it's not really asking the question, which is um, for people with um, MSI high status. Uh, they they should, as standard of care, be offered uh, checkpoint inhibitors, and you don't need to do a full molecular profile to know that you can just do immunohistochemistry. Um, and then your question is, should you add on this uh, big panel? And the answer is uh, that they're counting many of those people as a match, and thus they're not they're taking credit for something that you know should have been done in the control arm. Okay, so one of the things they've been glossing over is how many people were able to be matched to therapy. And the answer is 46 people. 46 people out of the 1,500 or so people that they initially tried to sequence, or 3%. So in other words, uh, this really seems like a fishing expedition. And the people who were able to get the matches uh, were baked in guarantee time bias in this study. So let's go to the discussion. The ability of patients with pancreas cancer to undergo tumor molecular profiling and receive targeted therapies is a challenge in the U.S. healthcare system. Uh, that's because uh, it should not be reimbursed because no one has proven that it has a benefit. Less than 5% are able to receive targeted therapies because of either the aggressiveness of the disease or logistic or economic issues. Ah, uh, so if that were the case, um, then you do know what guarantee time is, and yet you've not addressed it. However, our results show that patients who have actionable molecular alterations can drive considerable benefit from receiving a matched therapy. No, you didn't show that. You didn't show that at all. You did a lousy retrospective study with guarantee time, where you had to get at least one line of therapy and to be considered a matched patient, you had to have received a therapy that you consider a matched therapy. Uh, and the unmatched therapy, you had to have mutation for which you thought there was a matched therapy, but they didn't get that therapy. Uh, and as such, your study is unable to prove anything. It is 100% useless and just be, should be put in a shredder. Um, we showed that the median survival of patients with advanced pancreas cancer who have actual alterations is one year longer. No, you didn't. That one year could all be guarantee time. You don't even know what you're talking about. Thus, these findings set the stage for prospective clinical trials. Um, I think a funder who uses your trials to design a prospective trial is also throwing money down the toilet because um, you, you have no reliable way to come up with the delta that you're looking for in your study. Your study is so useless that I don't even have a good way to do a power calculation. Uh, But I welcome you to do that study because no matter how you power it, I assume uh, based on the lackluster results of your study, you're likely to have a negative result and maybe that will give you some ounce of humility when you write such a ridiculous paper in the future. Um, Ongoing efforts as part of KYT and future efforts more globally will will be needed in order to realize the full benefits of molecular targeted therapy. Nevertheless, we are encouraged by proof-of-concept outcome results presented here. It's not proof-of-concept. It proves nothing. And believe that continued efforts in this area are worthwhile and will enable more patients with pancreas cancer to benefit from precision medicine approach. Um, You have yet to prove that any patients benefit with a precision medicine approach. Certainly not more patients. But here's the real thing. Let's talk for a minute. Don't donate to this pancreatic cancer action network. I mean, this is just a waste. They, they have a, the ability to sequence 1,000, 1,500 people. They can just do the honest thing, which is we're gonna take people who have progressed on two prior lines of therapy, and we're gonna say anyone with paraffin tissue, you get to have sequencing, and we're gonna randomize you to a third line option based on investigator choice without knowing sequencing results, or a third line option based on knowing the sequencing results, powered for overall survival. Uh, a study like that, you postulate because of the selection bias of people who can tolerate a third line and go on a clinical trial, the median overall survival is probably going to be in the 6 to 12-month range, um, and you can power it for a 3, 4-month benefit in overall survival. Uh, you could probably do that study, and I haven't done the power calculation, but off the top of my head, I'm guessing uh, 500 participants, maybe about a third the size of the of the study that you've run. That's the study to do. It's not to do this useless study. How can all the people on this study, not a single one of you, of these authors could explain to the funders that this is a useless thing to do. It is a study that where we're gonna define people who are matched by those who happen to get a match therapy. But that means that you had to live long enough to get a match therapy in the match therapy group, but you didn't have to live long enough to get a match therapy in the control group. A definition of being in the treated group requires living till the treatment was administered. Uh, That's classic immortal time bias. Uh, Not a single one of these people, in fact, let me Google, do they even mention immortal time? <laughs> they, they don't even mention immortal or guarantee. They don't appear as words in the entire article. That's a disgrace. I mean, this is just like ro- rookie thing. I mean, let me give you an analogy for what they're doing, like how bad it is. What if what if somebody was like, I'm going to do a randomized trauma pancreas cancer, and uh, we don't need an IRB, and I'm just literally going to flip a coin. And I'm going to write down all the results of what happens um, with crayon on a napkin. I'm going to keep those napkins in this box. um, And I'm going to keep the box. I'm going to store it in my backyard. It might get rained on. I might lose a few napkins. And then later, I'm going to go through, try to sort out which napkins were which. And then I'm going to look at the results of my randomized trial. If somebody did a randomized trial like that, just... No, no regard for any of the rules of how to do a randomized trial, you would label them as even criminal. It would likely be subject to criminal prosecution. But if somebody does a retrospective observational study with the same ability to lead to a damaging conclusion that harms science and harms patient interests, um, they, and make the same just classic f- errors and terrible decision-making and terrible study design, They're not labeled a criminal. They're given in the Lancet Oncology article. That's crazy to me. You know, Andrew Vickers, who's a statistician at MSKCC, he said, you know, he has lovely quotes about how you would never let somebody who didn't do surgical residency uh, cut you open and remove your appendix. And yet you let people who haven't uh, shown that they don't have the basic understanding of, of statistical and epidemiological analysis to do such a study, um, which leads to a conclusion that actually harms a lot more people than if you let somebody who's never operated cut you open. Um, he says it's ludicrous, and I agree. It's absolutely ludicrous, and that's just what this study is. It's just a totally useless study. I mean, it, it might have been useful if they reported the response rate among people. That might have been the only thing they could have done right, report the response rate in um, based on every single treatment that was giving to every single person, but I was unable to locate that. Um one saving grace. Um, I don't know what to say. I'm just shocked that, you know, there are people who retweeted this. I think you should find people who retweeted this in a positive way, and you should uh, mute them or block them uh, and remove them from your Twitter feed. Because anyone who would retweet this in a positive way, agreeing with the conclusion of this paper, uh, has proven that they do not understand uh, basic retrospective studies and that they are not a trustworthy source. They are in fact fake news. And so they should be muted. Uh, That's just how bad it is. So on that positive note, we'll turn to question of the week. I'm back in plenary session HQ joined with Audrey Tran for questions from Audrey Tran, our most popular question segment, (laughs) questions from a medical student. Audrey, great to have you.
1: Thanks for having me. Yeah, great to be here.
0: It is a popular segment. This is the segment where Audrey asks questions about not about the boards, not examination questions, but questions about, I don't know, all things medicine and, and sort of the culture of medicine. And
1: I would say they're like philosophical questions. I mm. feel like we really, yeah. kind of the, a way to approach even the larger idea of like what we are doing and why we're doing it.
0: And, and yeah. I think those are the most fun questions. I think that's why the listeners really like it. So it's great Very to have you back. We've had a little bit of a hiatus, but we're back now.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah. So um, what's on the docket today?
1: Um, so this is actually a question I wanted to ask you uh, earlier in the years, being as it is a new decade and a new year. Oh, boy, new decade. But this yeah. idea of, you know, resolutions and not even really having these kind of lofty goals, but really just the art of self-improvement is really what I've, I've been asking myself. Um, and I was curious as someone, um, as a medical student, seeing someone, you know, as prolific and as uh, has all these kind of, irons in the fire I think oh what
0: okay i have a lot of irons in the fire yes. that's true okay
1: so with some with, with a person with so many as a doctor with so many irons in the fire um and also with your own philosophy of how to always be striving and improving i'm curious to know if you had any advice about ways to kind of specifically work on the habit of self-improvement yeah. and are there any systems or goals or things you keep in mind when you are trying to better yourself
0: that is a great question. See, the listener doesn't know this, but Audrey sends me, before we meet, uh, an email where she was like, you know, a couple of headers on questions just to give me a heads up so I can start thinking about it. And I saw this question on the sheet, and I was like, oh, I really love this question. Um, because um, I think it's a great question. It's a question, It's something that I actually do think a great deal about. Um, and I think the reason I really do like it is that it it kind of... Nicely juxtaposes with the careerism thing that I hate so much, which is there's so many times I listen to podcasts or read an article and it's all about you know how to be successful and it's all about careerism, which is how do you get somebody to give you the speaking engagement or the invited article or the the lecture or the be on the board or be on the guidelines or get some honorarium or do something like that get the get the thing get the thing, uh, and I hate that that really sickens me. But and the same the same podcast they don't ask uh, you know. How do you actually be better? You know, how do you, how do you try to be better? Like, and what what does it being better mean to you? Yes, yeah, exactly. like, you know, like what does it even mean to you to be better? Do you aspire to be better? Do you try to be better? Should we try to be better? You know, the thing in and of, in and of itself. And so I think that yeah. So when I saw it, I was like, oh, it's such a great question because I really wish we had just shift our all our attention onto this self improvement. And at the end of the day, if you get the brass rings. Great, their brass rings, and if you don't get them, it's also who cares. If you really do self-improve by your own metric of self-improvement, you will be better off for it, and you know when you die, you will be at peace with the one person with whom you need to be at peace with yourself. Um, So I do think it's like the ultimate benchmark. Okay, so I don't even know where we should start. I guess we should say that one question is: is um, is there such thing as self-improvement? I guess I would say I believe there is. So I guess I would concede that I believe there is we can that, you know, different people have different visions for what they want themselves to be. um, But we can imagine something and being better at something. And I guess for me, what do I hope to be better at? I guess I want to say that, you know, I really my profession, of course, is being and I guess I'm going to confine this to the career side of life, because I think there's there's room for self-improvement in other walks of life, too. Mm -hmm. And, you know, from relationships with people to personality to temperament to all these things that we we work mm-hmm. on self-improvement mm-hmm. to to um you know all sorts of things you know for instance i tell you that i'm on a ketogenic diet now and i'm mm-hmm. practicing intermittent fasting and oh, really and i'm hitting the gym three times a day <laughs>
1: <laughs> i was like oh interesting i almost okay. had you i <laughs> yeah.
0: almost had you for a second because <laughs> that's usually what people mean by self-improvement
1: yeah exactly. but- oh i think that's such a good point right where it's like i think sometimes people think of this they, they confine themselves to I think of the way that they improve themselves is A, by how they look mm-hmm. or A, what their personal or professional career looks like and I think that there's so many other facets of life of you've just even thinking differently about Yes, uh, with, thank you, know? you,
0: that's well put, exactly, they confine themselves like when you say self-improvement you're like, oh, you're hitting the gym mm-hmm. you know. Uh, but th- of course, yeah, the way you laugh very heartily—it's <laughs> <Sorry. laughs> almost in, almost an insulting laugh—at <laughs> <Sorry, I'm sorry. laughs> the thought that I would be going to the gym. Thought that I'd be going to the gym multiple times a day. I guess the listener will know that I don't do that. I'm not doing that. But um, that's all
1: right. That's all right. There's other avenues. to there's other. About. There's other avenues. Don't
0: forget. Don't forget. Yeah. But no, I do think that that's that is so true that like it's not about. I mean, we're talk, here. I'm going to talk about self improvement, not how you look. Um, not, you know, what you're eating and not all these sort of fads that, you know, honestly, 10 years from now are going to look just as foolish as fads look 10 years from now. So I'm not going to talk about that. I want to talk about self-improvement for like, I don't know, the cognitive part of the job of being a doctor. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then maybe if you're a surgeon, there's also that physical part of being a surgeon and and that I can't speak to because, you know, I'm not principally a, a proceduralist, but I can talk about the cognitive part of being better. And I guess I would say that, you know, it really does mean a lot to me and I aspire to be, and I know I'm not anywhere close to where I want to be, to be the best hematologist oncologist that I can actually be. And if I get no brass rings, but I know by my own benchmark that I'm the best hematologist oncologist, I will be so much happier mm-hmm. than if I get all the brass rings and I know I'm not the best hematologist oncologist. And and I don't want it to sound like arrogant or crazy, but I think that like, I'm not saying that I'm I'm there or I'm close to being there. I'm just saying that I have this ideal for what the best hematologist oncologist Mm -hmm, is and I aspire to be there. And so to me that means several things and some of the listeners may disagree with me. But to me, one of the things that means is uh, I don't wanna be just the best at colon cancer or myeloma or something like that. I wanna be the best at all of it. And I think Mm -hmm. that actually when you know, try to know a lot about all of it, you actually see some connections and some parallels that you wouldn't see if you were just sort of in one Mm -hmm. bucket or the other bucket. Um, you see things that you don't always see. And that has led us to like write some papers that you know people wouldn't think, and I don't want to scoop stuff we're working on, but that's the stuff closest to my mind. But like this thing Jenny is working on right now, mm-hmm. where it's an example from polycythemia vera, another disease that I'm not going to tell you, and another disease I'm not going to tell you. Mm-hmm. And in three different diseases, we see the same sort of pattern of behavior emerging, mm-hmm. and we're putting it together, and we're trying to make this argument. And mm-hmm. so that's something that you wouldn't see if you were just you know in the house of polycythemia vera in the house of this disease or house of that disease so mm-hmm. okay yeah, and and what it means to be the best of course is not like i don't know i'm i know i'm I'm never going to be the best and i don't want to be the best like trialist or laboratory person that that's not that's not my identity i'm a doctor and i want to be the best hematologist oncologist to me means that i want to be the absolute best person when it comes to making decisions for people who have those diseases, like the best actual mm-hmm. one-on-one doctor. Mm-hmm. And, you know, even though we have this rhetoric of there's like many ways to be a good doctor, I think that's true. But I think that a lot of times you hear what other people are doing and you disagree. Mm-hmm. And there are some ways that are better than other ways. And to to be the best hematologist oncologist, to me, the like the gold standard way you would define that is if we were like in a room with people who've been doing this for many years and we all have sort of you know, the same patient encounter, and then and then we come in and we sit in the room and we say, you know, we all saw the same person, Mr. Smith, and Mr. Smith has colon cancer, and it's progressed on, you know, whatever, and you mm-hmm. tell the story about Mr. Smith. What do you want to do? And we go around the room, and, you know, people, there will be some differences of opinions, I think. I think in many cases, a lot of people will be thinking similarly, and I just want to be the person in that room that every time I say what I think, that I know that if somebody disagrees with me, and we we pull the two of us out yeah. and we have like a debate, like how yeah. we've done in our class, like an right. Oxford style debate. Right. And we have an audience of hematologists, oncologists, like our peers. And we each get like one hour to argue our side. I want to w- always win those debates. Like, so, okay, so that's, that's to me is like the ideal. <laughs> yeah. Like, right. I want to know this so well, be so good at it, um, you know, that I'm always going to persuade the audience that my plan of action is the best plan. Right. And, and even a lot of the research I do is with this goal of being like the best doctor you can be, mm-hmm. because it's research that's like, empowers those kind of thinking, Right. like, right. here's some here's something I will scoop, we have a paper coming with Scott Parsons and Eddie uh, Maldonado, mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. coming in JAMA Network Open, that's going to be looking at adjuvant and metastatic drugs, and it's looking very broadly at all, uh, sort of three major cancer types. And I was like, when you do a paper like that, which is, you know, of course, they did all the hard work. I didn't do the hard work, but I kind of guided them a little bit. Um, that gives you information that when you're back in this this hypothetical debate situation, you're debating what you're going to do for person A, mm-hmm. um, this information will, will will be very persuasive, I think. Right. 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 So, so right. like, part of the reason we even did that project, it's not that there's a publication. In that particular case, I do think there's a policy thing we're going to persuade people of, a little policy thing to it, but I think there's this huge, like, as a clinician, knowing this information is going to make you so much stronger. And you're going to be able to go in there in a situation and you're going to say something like, Well, you know, we don't have phase three data in this adjuvant situation. I know people like to do X, but. In every instance where you don't have phase three data in an adjuvant situation, what's the probability that those phase three – and there was a phase three trial that was run, what's the probability that those phase three trial runs are positive? Uh, and people don't know the answer to that question, but we're going to answer that question. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, okay. That's a long-winded trying yeah. to get it. Like, what is the thing it's, in and of itself?
1: Yeah. I think if yeah. I can try to yeah. summarize what okay. I heard, which, which I totally agree with so many, so many points, which is a – the. Breath without sacrificing nuance um, mm-hmm. is kind of what I was hearing when you were saying, I want to be good at all these things because I think from seeing the totality of the space, you gather these like really novel insights. I think that's super important because I think, again, echo chambers and bubbles yeah. can always be really, really difficult, even though we're, trying, we're all trying to do our best in being as thorough as possible. Um, and then also I think just these ideas of honestly just like waiting through uncertainty, there's like certain signposts and data that you that you want to hold your hat on, you know what I mean? Or like to swing around to mm-hmm. navigate these mm-hmm. sorts of things. And when you have familiar signposts or when you've done enough research where you can kind of say like I'm not just when I am doing these debates, it's it's really based on things I've discovered empirically. Mm-hmm. And therefore that's how I can move forward. So it's just which I think is just really helpful because it's um it's at, at the interpersonal level, it's like Sometimes I feel like when I've uh, worked with patients, um, I I, I leave and I'm, like, not absolutely certain still, like, as a student, like, if that was, like, the best thing for them to do.
0: Right, right. You're you're not certain with the decision or the process. Yeah, the process. Yeah, and I I think that that's really well put because when I was a student – Oh that that feeling that I didn't in my heart of hearts know yes. that this was yeah. the right strategy right. that was a huge motivation yes. to go home and hit the books yes yes it was exactly. a huge motivation exactly. and and when people talk about like reading you know when people always say that thing that sort of trite thing that like you need to read about your patients as the best way to learn and I, you know it's it's one of those things that's a, a cliche of course but it's like many clichés actually some truth in that and the reason you learn is that like when you really have that sort of emotional vulnerability that mm-hmm. it matters to you that you're telling this person what's yes. right yes. because you do really care about exactly. it and you need that intellectual certain you know, uncertainty yes. and that motivates you to read like nobody's business yes. like you're going to be home killing the book staying up late doesn't matter what bedtime you know you mm-hmm. don't care you really need to know because this person's got to make the decision tomorrow mm-hmm. and i think that's why right reading about your patients is so important so yeah i i totally get that and like um, that, in the early part of my career, that was a huge motivation. Now, of course, you, know, you do it longer and longer and longer. Now I'm five years on faculty. Um, you know, it's less and less that I have those sort of just total anxiety about it because I don't know anything. But often there is a few things where you know, I still have some anxiety about because I, I don't know to the depth I want to know it. We were just talking about another topic that we won't, We shall not mention, but I was just complaining that, you know, what is the diagnostic characteristics of the testing and what is this and what is that? And I see all these people talking a big game, but no one is telling me what I exactly want to know. But anyway, you know what I mean? Um, okay, so, so, okay, so we agree. So like part of it is this, you know, this idea that when you're a doctor and you see people, you want to be the best doctor you can be. Um, and that means that, you know, your decision making can go toe to toe with anyone else's. And if you and if they really disagree with you and you put us on a stage instead of an audience of 400 expert he doctors, give us an Oxford style debate that I will always trounce this person. You know, like that's that's how con- you know, that's just like a way in which I'm trying to gauge how like how thoroughly do I know this literature? How well do I know the, you know, the patient's concerns and fears and their their shared decision making process? Because like all of that is pertinent in the debate. OK, so that's the goal. All right, so how do you get better at that? Uh, I guess before, I wanted, one of the points I wanted to make was I think that there are some people who don't aspire for it, and that really bothers me. The idea that, like, I just want to be a good doctor. I don't want to be a great doctor. And I, I think nobody sets out to be a good doctor, not a great doctor, but I think life kind of gets in the way, and there are some people who 10 years out, 15 years out, they're just satisfied saying, you know, I'm just going to be a good doctor. Yeah, you know, you're you're, you're talking about, like, uh, you know how to how to interpret an interaction coefficient in a paper, uh, you know, for like some subgroup where they think there's a benefit, and then I'm getting at all this like stuff about like how should you think about interaction coefficients and like what do the statisticians say and what's the debate there and blah blah blah, and they're like, yeah, yeah, you know, I don't want to know all those details. Like it's it's it works in this subgroup, it doesn't work in that subgroup. I'm like, okay, so you want it like simplified, huh? Well, that's just being a good doctor because you really don't know. You know, with the level that I know, uh, whether or not this subgroup is really benefiting disproportionately or not. like you haven't really thought about it. Um, and I do think there are lots of people who just are I don't know, you get happy with being a good doctor. I don't know. to me, that's not good enough. I think I don't know. I feel like what we do is really sacred and and maybe the anxiety I have in that situation, like mm-hmm. you describe, at least in the beginning was a lot. Sure. And so I, I wouldn't be able to sleep if that was what, yeah. how I felt. Like, oh, I, I know it well enough. Like, I want to know it. And I still don't feel like I know it as much as I want to know it. You know, I right. want to know it even right. more. Exactly. That's why I talk to all these stats people and other people. Okay, so okay, so we, now we have like a clear idea of what the goal is. Okay, here's what I think can get you there. I don't know. This is not evidence-based <laughs> and unlikely to be. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, read fiction alternating with nonfiction. I'm a big believer that like one hour of reading before bed is like very good for cognitive processes, mm-hmm. for I don't know, general well-being, mm-hmm. and for just the pl- the sheer pleasure of reading.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You don't yeah. always have to read a book like *Malignant*, bad policy, <laughs> <laughs> but you've read it. Yes, uh, that's uh, good. But, I, but uh, I thank you. I'll pay you later. Um, <laughs> but and I do like the idea of, reading, of alternating a fiction book and a nonfiction book mm. because I think. Um, with nonfiction books, they're hit or miss, you know, there's such a variable range. And the, the 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 classic jokes are true that like most should be an essay and like, you know, they're very mm-hmm. rarely deserve to be mm-hmm. a full book. But the fiction books are often written, you know, at a better level, like better writing, they have to be. I mean, mm. it's a more competitive marketplace. Like, interesting. you know, yeah. like a nonfiction book on the history of human evolution, there's only going to be like, Six nonfiction books on human evolution a year. I mean, I don't know the answer. But but a fiction book that's trying to get the interest of this huge audience of readers, there's so many options. And so Mm -hmm. And it's
1: almost like you can't you have to have them buy into a world that doesn't exist yet. Uh, Yeah. That's that's tricky. That's tricky.
0: That's an uphill battle. Yeah,
1: it's not like, oh, a niche like interest group or like a PhD program that has all these certain you know, fields that are already established, you have to create it. You and, have to
0: create it. And yeah. everything is a, every wall can be moved. Yeah. There's nothing yes, that's stationary. Yes. Everything mm-hmm. is up for grabs. Mm-hmm. I, I, so, you know, I once heard somebody ask like, oh, nonfiction is just as valuable literature as fiction. I was like, get out of here. Come on. <laughs> the people who do really good fiction, they're writing at a very high level. So, okay. So I like to alternate the two. I think it's helpful to see it and to read it. Um Okay. I write, have heated conversations. (laughs) So this is like, I don't know. I mean, I think this is such a huge thing, which is like, I've had a number of dear friends who I've trained with medical school residency fellowship. I call them and I bug them. And, and sometimes we talk a little bit about, you know, I don't know, medical de-identified cases, of course, not Mm -hmm. identified cases, but like, we, you know, with just, just enough of the story to get a sense. And, and, and I don't know, I want to have a heated conversation by that. I mean, like, I don't know, push them and say like, you know, when somebody tells me like what ha- something they did in their clinic and I'm like, oh, well, why'd you do that? Why'd you do that? Really really push them, force them to defend what they have to say. And likewise, I like when people do that to me. Um, when we're on service, when I'm on service with the residents or fellows, um, I wrote down here is like, have a M&M conference. What do I mean by that? Like we all know what M&M is. It's mm-hmm. like this classic thing. But I really do want to like, if you ever have something on service that doesn't go the way we wished it went, whether that's something we did or something that nature did or God did. Um, I like to sit them down and kind of revisit what we did. Um, I think it's incredibly helpful to go through. And over the course of the last few years while on service, I have you know, definitely sat down trainees and said, let's talk about you know, this person's case. Uh, what, would we do, what would we have done differently knowing what we know now? Could we have done anything differently? And maybe sometimes the answer is no. You know, like we did everything the way we wanted to do it Mm -hmm. and there's nothing we could have done differently. Uh, Maybe sometimes the answer is, you know, here or there, this or that. Uh, But I think that mental exercise is really important. And it's like, it's so easy to just get caught up in the day and day and just see the rounds and go through. It's a lot harder to have that conversation. Um, I wrote uh, also um, like the practical things that I think is, I write like, listen to podcasts that make you think. Mm -hmm. And you know in medicine there's some of them but sometimes you run out of them so sometimes i listen to the legal podcast because i think they really do kind mm. of make you think oh, yeah, a little bit yeah, yeah. Uh, i wrote here like write rebuttals as my thought and what do i mean by that is like i don't know like when you're doing some paper you have some point of view i think and you're writing your thing sometimes it's nice to like take a step aside and and just say okay let me put this away for a second this is what i believe now I got to write the rebuttal. You know, what would I re- oh, if I really didn't like, mm-hmm. you know, I'm ta- now I, just imagine, I got to be on the other side. I, I assigned myself that task. Let me write that rebuttal. Well, okay, here's how I would poke holes at this, my own argument. Mm-hmm. And then having done that mental exercise, return to what you're working on. And I think you can write it with a resume strength. Mm-hmm. Um, but your question I think was about self-improvement. So you called it the habit of self-improvement. I totally think that's true. And so by habit, I mean like you have to build in the reading into your day-to-day schedule you got to keep up with the journals, which I've discussed extensively on episode, right. I think, 2.35. Mm-hmm. Listeners can listen to my podcast on that. Um, so I think it has to be part of your routine, your habit. I don't know. You see me in my office. I'm on the phone a lot. Yeah. I, I write. wrote right here, pick fights with smart people. There's some <laughs> smart people I call, and I pick fights with them about <laughs> stuff. And I and I sometimes I float ideas that we're working on to them, and mm-hmm. I see gauge how they feel about it and see what they say. And you know, sometimes right. I tell you, like, oh, <laughs> so-and-so made a good point. We mm-hmm. should consider looking at this or that. Right. Um, and I guess for a long time I did that on Twitter, but now increasingly I, I'm getting sick of that, so I, I don't really <laughs> pick too many fights on there anymore. Um,
1: what you're describing is a a method of refining conviction.
0: Mm, yes, <laughs> method of refining conviction. Yes.
1: Yes, and being like, "Am I sure? And how sure? How how can I be sure? And I think it is, I, you know, it's like it's very refreshing, and I don't think I really hear people say this very often, but it's like to choose the other side and not and not not to choose the other side when you truly believe that the mm-hmm. the pro side is what you what you in your heart of hearts really believe yeah and still fa- still facing all the reality of like what and perceiving how it might be construed how it how it how the there's weaknesses in certain elements of the argument and stuff like that but i think that's <clears> that's, that's really useful because it's it's i think that conviction for conviction's sake or just or just Believing in it hard enough or having the rhetoric to say like I truly believe in this um seems to be effective for some people to yes, like
0: for some people for yes. some people to um, it's in vogue and effective right right or, but it's a weak it's deep weakness. right
1: yes and yeah. and so it's like and at some point, I think it's like how you there's a point where it's like you're too far gone where if you if you really dig in your heels or yeah, oh, um, yeah. I see those people. where it's like you know it's hard to it's hard to reverse, but I think truly everything is in flux if that makes sense, like i mean there's some positions that I think i think. I mean, I'm not saying like every position in the world, but I'm saying like medical evidence or whatnot. Yes,
0: there's always some un- residual uncertainty. Mm-hmm. Yes, right.
1: yes, exactly. So I, I guess it's, I just think it's, it's, I think that's a good trend to adapt to is to be like we have to embrace the uncertainties to, to really see it from both sides and, and and not not have our identities like shattered or oh, like I know. not have our Keep like that separate. Yeah, not have not, like this. Keep is, Keep your ego aside. Yes, this isn't like we, we even if we built a house. On, on all these sorts of things, it's it's still not who we are. It's not. It still doesn't define our worth. I don't know. Um, I, I I don't know. It's. I'm kind of rambling at this point. But I, I no, just. No, I think it's that's well put. Just uh, I don't And know. I think
0: like with medicine, like when it comes to like a specific medical decision. Um, there are decisions that have strong evidence and weak evidence, but nothing is certain mm-hmm. and nothing is, um, I guess, maybe something is so ridiculous that it's absolutely like, <laughs> right, just right. total bunk. Sure, sure. But, you know, but, you know, every once in a while you're surprised where there are things that people have called total bunk that ended up being like, you know, highly successful, you know, because of some dogged, persistent believer. Right. Uh, some medicine's on this continuum. And then on the other side, though, but the nice thing about human decision-making, you know, it's easy to say, like, there's this, all this uncertainty, how do we handle uncertainty? But the nice thing about human decision-making is there are often rules of thumb heuristics, like, right. you know, when you're, when are you more willing to take a chance, you know, I described this in the book, uh, are you more willing to take a gamble on an adjuvant therapy, a chemo preventive mm-hmm. therapy, or mm-hmm. therapy for some of these multiply relapsed tumors who death is near? You know mm-hmm. and of course, there's this natural human instinctual tendency to say that it's the person who has the grimmest prognosis in whom we're most willing to accept uncertainty right. rather than chemo prevention in in right. masses of people where we right. could, you know have no idea what we're doing. and And there's some good, I think, um, you know sort of philosophical reasons why that's the case, as well as I think some empirical data that suggests that that's the case. So you know, like so part of why I was writing that book was try to articulate some of these principles. Um, and I so I think that kind of also weighs into this discussion. So when you're thinking about what's the best, you know being the best monk doctor, what does that mean? And it doesn't just mean that, like you're 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 appropriately judging the evidence appropriately, but you're also sort of contextualizing it in the situation and taking into account you know a person's particular proclivity to tolerate risk and their and their desire for shared decision making. And so I think that's all part of it. And that's why I think like, you know, an Oxford style debate where, you know, you even get the patient up there and let the patient talk for 10 right. minutes. And oh, then you let both sides argue with yeah. what, what I recommend. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then the audience can hear directly their values and preferences. Like, you know, that's that's like this sort of, you know, platonic gold standard right. of like being a good doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, and then of course, you know, whether or not the patient agrees with what you said and likes how, who delivered it. Or maybe, you know, maybe the audience is not a bunch of hemonk doctors. Maybe the audience is uh, 4,000 sort of, cloned versions of the patient, you know,
1: mm, mm. you
0: know, sort of a stochastic patient, like the patient mm. is the audience, but cloned 4,000 times because we all know how human beings are, you know, you don't make the same decision Tuesday, you make Wednesday,
1: right? Y- you're sort of like
0: Heraclitus, you know, stepping into the river, <laughs> the same person is at the same river. So you got like, the audience is 4,000 sort of avatars of the same person deciding which oncologist's <laughs> recommendation is most persuasive to them, you know, yeah. something like that, like, yeah. that's like the gold standard. Anyway, you'll never achieve it, but you aspire to do it. Sure. Um, but the practical things, I think, are like read more, read fiction, alternate nonfiction, read more articles, read articles better, listen to podcasts, read statistical blogs. I mean, all these things mm-hmm. kind of feed into the, like thinking better about what we're doing and why we're doing it. Um, and and to aspire to do it, I think, is like the biggest thing. It's like actually desiring to do it, desiring the self-improvement.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: OK, let's go okay. to the part two of your question. Sure.
1: OK. All right. Some, um kind of a part two of this question is, how do you define efficiency? And in your opinion, what's better doing something right, but taking the first time, but taking a lot of time to do so? Or um, I guess the alternative is to get it, your foot in the door first, and then you edit later. Um, so what are your thoughts on productivity? And how do you, I guess, measure that?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. I guess I know you you tell you that I have a lot of irons in the fire, but that's just because I have a lot of things I'm curious about. And (laughs) I have a lot of people who ask me to do stuff. And so if I'm curious about something and somebody asks me to do something because they want to do something, then I'm like, oh, sure, here, work on this. Mm -hmm. And so that Mm -hmm. ends up being a lot of irons in the fire.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Um, But I guess I would say that, like, uh, you know, part of my careerism thing would be to say, uh, you know, efficiency is not like just writing the paper that's like a pointless exercise. But, like, I think efficiency is once you have – thought about something a long time, you know, like these clinical situations, um, you want to like, sometimes you often want to generate some additional evidence you don't know to help you when you're like Mm decision-making. And when you, you know, work with some people to do that evidence, that becomes like a research project for me. Um, And efficiency, I think, is like getting that done as quickly and meaningfully and accurately as possible. I think what's better, of course, is that it has to be accurate. So doing something right is most important. And and not I wouldn't say not just taking a long time to do so, even abandoning things that cannot be made right, like mm-hmm. they're just are fundamentally flawed or is a yeah. bad idea, or is, you mm-hmm. know, just to be willing to give up on it. Uh, not not and I want to be careful to say not giving up on it because it's a negative result, because that's still often very mm-hmm. informative. Mm-hmm. And you know, ninety I don't know, fifty percent of what I do is negative. I mean, the point of the article is the the the, 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 right. the punchline is that it's in fact not there's no relationship when you sure. thought there might be. Um, but But it's because, like, I mean, like, just like you can't really do it, honestly. Like, um, to me, the the classic example was that paper by um, in Science last year by Obermeyer that looked at like, um, uh, can we predict death? And their their answer was that people say there's a lot of waste in healthcare because we spend a lot on people who are about to die. We created a machine learning algorithm to figure out if we could predict whether or not people die in the next year. It turns out that uh, even the best machine learning algorithm based on covariates in the EMR and Medicare data set cannot predict who will die with a high degree of refinement. Ergo, um, there is no waste in healthcare because we cannot say who's going to die Mm -hmm. and cut off their healthcare services. And to me, that article is fundamentally flawed Mm -hmm. because uh, it doesn't say anything about waste in healthcare. It just says you can't identify who will live or die. But it's possible you're doing a lot of things that are wasteful, you're just mm-hmm. doing them on things, people who both happen to live in spite of what you did and who died despite mm-hmm. of what you were doing. You know, yeah. So it actually doesn't get at that question of waste. It, it, I think, and if they thought about it long enough, they'll see that. So, like to me, that's a kind of paper that I might have aborted because I realized like you can't really answer right. like to be wait to know if it's wasteful or not. You need to know in a hundred people who fit this characteristic does it add a benefit? And to do that, you really need randomized trials. Mm-hmm. There's no substitute. You're not gonna be able to do that. Fish that out through an E.M.R. sort of analysis. Right. So okay, so that's an example of something I would have abandoned. Uh, And I see papers I would have abandoned all the other all the time, like what's the response rate in a phase ones for molecular drugs, we're going to look at the published literature. So that's a paper that, you know, it has a very high response rate. But of course, negative response rate phase ones aren't published in the literature. So Mm -hmm. I would have abandoned that at the outset saying that like that would no matter what you find, it's going to be super biased and flawed. So that's what I mean, like efficiency is quick to abandon things that are bad, Mm -hmm. that will never give you a useful data point. and then to work smoothly, efficiently, and try to get things done, but accuracy more than speed. Mm-hmm. And then the last part of your question was, what are your thoughts on productivity?
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: I guess I would say, I mean, I don't know, I think everyone in the beginning of their careers has this feeling of like, I just want to publish like some amount of papers. And you know, I saw that, that nice tweet, which was like, um, what was it I should, it was like, uh, when you first go to a conference, you don't know anybody, and they don't know you. Oh, and then, and then, after a few years you. going to conference, you know you everybody. know everybody. They don't know you. <laughs> yeah. after a few more years, yeah. you know everybody, and everybody knows you. Mm-hmm. And after a few more years, <laughs> uh, you don't know anybody, but they all know you. And then, after the end of your lot career, it's you don't know anybody, and nobody knows you. you know um, <laughs> back
1: from whence we came back yeah. from whence
0: we came. Yes. And I thought that was like super true. And so that's why I think about like productivity, like, you know people who are writing the papers because they want to get to that point in the conference where everybody knows you well, that's not the point the point is you know if you feel like you can contribute something to this dialogue of medicine which is a dialogue that's been a lot longer than just our lifetimes you know it's a mm-hmm. 4000 year dialogue mm-hmm. and if you can contribute something to it productivity means that whatever you're tossing out there the river, the rocks you're throwing in the stream of medicine is shaping the way the current is going. So that's like my measure of productivity, oh, interesting. right?
1: Interesting, yeah.
0: You know, that's like nice. like yeah, you're like you, you're trying to direct people to your way of thinking. Um and and, and you're not doing that because of I think you're doing that because you genuinely believe your way of thinking is right. And your way of thinking Mm -hmm. is like, you know, has overcome all these problems and limitations and you want them to see that. And so productivity means that it's not necessarily about where you're publishing or how often you're publishing. It's about publishing like the right article, Mm -hmm. like the article that really is resonating or people find persuasive. Mm -hmm. You know how much I spend, you know, you know, you know me since we've worked (laughs) together, but like I'm a, one of the things I'm really obsessed with is like, I want to, I want to get somebody who disagreed with me and get the article to get them to see it my way, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And that means a lot of times you've got to bring a lot of data to kind of, like we're kind of doing with our AML article, which, yeah. you know, yeah. kind of proves that. Right. Right. Um, and I guess, I guess that was also sort of like a philosophy of the book, uh, Malignant. Mm-hmm. You know, like I guess somebody would say, like the careerist would say, like, oh, a goal of writing a book should be um, to have uh, as big an audience as possible. And everyone knows in cancer medicine what will get you the big audience. Would you be right if you wrote like a lot of pandering vignettes, you know, mm-hmm. vignettes mm-hmm. where you kind of uh, hero worship or glorify people who made discoveries, even though uh, individual contribution was not so great and these people right. are often deeply flawed, um, mm-hmm. as well as um, tell sort of um, stories of people who against all odds did well. That's the kind of sort of public catnip for writing right, a book. right, and, and, and oh gosh, yeah, it's a, pu- it's a public catnip. And you will note in my book, there will be none of that. <laughs> yeah, <I know. laughs>
1: yeah,
0: you're right. There's none of that. There's going to be none of that. There's no pandering. Like, what is the goal of the book? It is like to take somebody who thinks they know how we should develop drugs and do studies and measure drugs and measure endpoints and progression free survival and all these things, and they think they know what they're doing, and they think they really believe that this is, like, the best system, and it's to, like, systematically go and point out all the sort of limitations And then just break that out of them and for them to kind of middle of the book to realize that, wow, a lot of what we're doing makes no sense at all. Mm -hmm. And is really only makes sense if you're trying to chase short term profits and not if you're actually trying to help people. And then to try to take all those same strands and tie it back together at the end so that there's actually like, here's how you do it if you wanted to do it right. Mm. And, you know, so I don't know if I'll be successful or not. But like certainly it's not it's I know that there's going to be a lot of people that I anticipate the criticism. This is too technical. This is too boring, you know, for at least some of those chapters on surrogates. Uh, at other points, there might say, I don't know, maybe they'll, some of the some of the chapters I think they they'll find quite sensational and yeah. not, not. But yeah. I think
1: I think um, actually this is kind of tying back to the first question, but it's especially about the the I think I told you this earlier, but the consistency in searching for conviction. Um, it's like where it's like I feel like the book um, it's it's really laying out the principles of thought of that, that all have to do with being the best doctor that you can be, you yeah. know, of, of really, and, and in, in, doing so going outside, what is people are saying is quote unquote established practice or to, to really find for yourself, like what, what do I truly believe to be the right thing? Um, and I also think what's interesting too, is like where you're kind of describing too, where it's like the, I like the, the imagery of the, the tide or the, the course of the river yeah. and you like put a little stick in it and that kind of you know, yes, diverts yes. a little bit a little of bit, yeah. of that attention because it's it's not necessarily even about the stick, but it's about the the stream that results yes. from from that little thing. So it's just like this egoless sort of uh, idea of like, well, if it wasn't there, if there was nothing there, it would just continue forward in this one direction that we don't necessarily think is the best way to go. Yeah. You know? Like I it, I
0: mean. it, no, I think the stream metaphor captures it because like The absolute, the people who have been the most influential, maybe the best they've done is like, it's like throwing in like one little boulder in, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. shaping it one way. That's like the most you can be. And then like a meaningful influence in a career is to be like a stick. Mm -hmm. But then like instead, I would say the majority of scientists are like, throwing trash in it, you know, like pollute, <laughs> polluting it, you know, putting like some pesticide mm-hmm. in it, some trash, some useless, <laughs> useless finding. And then a lot of people are like, just go in and splash, just splash the water, mm-hmm. splashing it up because it's, they just see which way it's going, just splashing that direction. I mean, that's that. So I think that's like the kind of science that bothers me. Yeah. But like, yeah, I think that, that, and I guess part of it is that along the way I kind of, you know, I, I reached like the philosophy of malignant was like kind of solidified in my mind, you know, circa 2015, 16, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe, maybe that's when it's solidified. And then, Mm -hmm. and then writing it was kind of thinking like, okay, how will you take somebody on the fence and get them to that philosophy? Then you guys were saying, you and Derek were pointing out that like, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, when you listen to like isolated lectures, it doesn't make (laughs) sense. But like maybe when it's all laid out. When
1: it's all pieced together, like, but you were saying, it's like each, each article is a piece of evidence for you personally or, or, but then once you see it in this, like this narrative uh, or this like argument a, B, C, it actually, it's all supporting this larger thesis. So it's really, like, it does make a ton of sense. It's just, I think, if you drop people in the middle of it, it may yeah. not be the most easy to absorb quickly, if that makes sense.
0: And that's probably why, like, when you tweet in one of the articles on Twitter, right. it gets, like, yeah, big backlash. <laughs>
1: exactly. That's what I'm saying. So yeah. maybe they just, they need some context. That's they need
0: I'm some saying. context. So I think they're going to see it there. Yeah. And then, you know, I also like to say that, like, you know, about your thing about self-improvement. Like, um, And efficiency. I think the book ties to that because like, yeah, of course, I could spend a whole nother year to make it better. I still, when Mm I'm skimming it now with the proof, um, not the proof, the advanced copy, I'm skimming it. I'm like, eh, I would have changed that. I would have changed this. I would have changed that. But at some point, you just have to like, you know, it's your best shot at the time. Right. Um, And I do think it's an intermediary endpoint. That's Mm -hmm. what bothered me about that careerism tweet that, you know, it's not in and of itself like the thing you want to do. It's just a path. It's just a a stone that's trying to shape a conversation. And Mm -hmm. the success or failure is whether or not. It right. actually succeeds at exactly. doing that.
1: Awesome.
0: All right. I think we've talked about this a lot, but I think it's a great question. Self improvement, it doesn't mean ketogenic diet and intermittent fat <laughs> <path. laughs> and hitting the gym. Uh, I think it means like professional or cognitive self improvement. I think the goal is one, it has to be a desire that you have. And if the desire is dying in you, that's bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have to build it into habit. And I don't know, different, there's no right answer to that. I just told you what I like to do. Um, and then you have to think about like what does it mean to be better like in your mind, even mm-hmm. if that's something that's not real, but at least something to imagine. Uh, efficiency, I think, has to do with like what your goals are and what you want to do. And uh, that's a great question. And it's like the opposite of careerism. <laughs> All right, well, thanks for coming on.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: You've been listening to Season 2 of Plenary Session. I've been your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. Plenary Session was produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. Review this podcast at the iTunes Store. Supporters of this podcast can back us on Patreon. Patreon allows you to support artists you like, and Patreon backers will get access to all of the slides discussed on Plenary Session. Got questions for the show? Tweet to us at plenary underscore session or email us at plenary session podcast at gmail.com. We love fielding listener questions. Thanks for listening.